This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 6, 2013. I'm Linda Poon. And I'm Sarah Crespi. This week on the show, we have stories on noisy gene expression, the benefits of snake venom, and results from a close-up look at the site of the 2011 Tohoku Oki earthquake. And this is the first time that anybody has drilled a substantive hole of any kind under seven kilometers of water, let alone drill it, take measurements, put in instruments, and bring home the instruments nine months later. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Transcription is the process by which the DNA code of genes is transcribed into messenger RNA that can be used as a template for the production of proteins. How each gene is read determines the protein composition, which then dictates its functions. Today, one of the key challenges for biologists is understanding how regulatory sequences in our genomes and other factors control the expression of our genes. Alvaro Sanchez spoke with me about the possible mechanisms that govern transcription that can explain the level of transcriptional burstiness, or noise, in gene expression. Our review is about the timing of mRNA synthesis or transcription in single cells. Transcription is the first step of the central dogma of molecular biology. And in single cells, the transcription is stochastic or noisy. And the question we're asking here is whether or not the evidence that has accumulated in the literature supports the hypothesis that the timing of transcription of a given gene is a property of that gene and mainly determined by its regulatory DNA sequence. An alternative hypothesis that is consistent with some data that has been published recently is that the timing or kinetics of transcription are mainly governed by some other global extrinsic factors that would affect most of the genes more or less equally, regardless of what their sequence is. So the timing or the kinetics of the transcription process determines how noisy gene expression will be. What does noise mean in this context? By noise here, we refer to the random fluctuations in the rate of mRNA synthesis. If you think of a clock, right, a clock ticks in regularly spaced intervals of one second. But transcription does not work like that. Instead, genes are transcribed in irregularly spaced intervals. 
And the waiting time in between two successive transcription events is not regular. It is stochastic. And this leads to the kinetics of transcription being noisy. So what are the two scenarios that are believed to govern this noise in gene expression? The two limiting scenarios that we're considering here, the first one is that the timing of transcription of a given gene is a property of that particular gene. And it is determined by the sequence of that gene's uh, regulatory region. And a second limiting scenario that has also been proposed recently, and which also seems to be consistent with some data, is that all those gene-specific effects are relatively small, and the noise in gene expression, or those fluctuations around the mean, are governed by global sources that would affect most genes more or less equally. Now, what those global sources would be, if they do indeed exist, is not yet known. So let's examine the evidence for one of these scenarios. How do studies of gene expression in yeast point to a gene-specific transcriptional kinetics? To me, the, the most compelling evidence comes from studies that have systematically perturbed the uh, regulatory DNA sequence of individual genes and measured the transcriptional kinetics, either directly or indirectly, as a result of those perturbations. So those studies have found that by perturbing that regulatory DNA sequence, you can greatly affect the level of noise. In other words, that two genes that have the same average rate of transcription may differ widely by over an order of magnitude in their noise levels, depending on what the regulatory architecture is. So uh, I believe that this clearly supports that in yeast, um, the kinetics of transcription are very much determined by the regulatory architecture of each gene. And from these studies, what can you tell us about the different regulatory features that affect gene expression? A number of these perturbations have been applied. So, for instance, the number of transcription factor binding sites has been systematically changed. In a study, a cassette containing either one or seven identical transcription factor binding sequences were used, and the level of noise was measured for both cases. And in addition to the number of transcription factor binding sites, their strength has also been changed by introducing mutations in their sequence, and their location relative to the initiation site has also been changed. Basically, the transcription factor binding site was moved around. And finally, there's also evidence that the presence of a TATA box, which is a sequence that is recognized by the pre-initiation complex, so to speak, has also been either removed or added. And finally, also the presence of nucleosomes near the uh, initiation site has also been found to affect noise. What about the evidence for the alternative scenario? For these, you looked at studies in E. coli. How did they show that transcriptional kinetics are governed by global noise constraints? Well, I would say that that issue is still under debate because no one has repeated in E. coli the kinds of experiments, the systematic perturbations of genetic architecture that have been done in yeast. But the studies that have been done so far have examined a variety of completely different genes in cells growing under very different growth conditions. And in those studies, the noise was measured, and it was found that a number of very different genes had very similar noise characteristics, regardless of what their architecture was, and even irrespective of what their growth conditions were. So that is the main line of evidence that has suggested in E. coli, it might be that the architecture of the regulatory region or the sequence of the regulatory region does not have a very large effect. All right, so the review also looked at studies in animal cells, which, like yeast, are eukaryotic. So 
Did those studies yield the same kind of evidence as the studies in yeast? Surprisingly not. I would say that for now, the evidence that the noise is determined by the genetic sequence of the regulatory region in animal cells is not as strong as it is for yeast. But at the same time, it is also true that this question has not been studied to the same level as it has been in yeast, and that very few systems have been analyzed. But the evidence that has been published so far seems to indicate that there are definitely global properties of the noise that is followed by a large number of genes that seem to also be different in their particular regulatory sequence. But again, as I was saying before, for E. coli, the systematic studies that have been performed in yeast have not been replicated in, in animal cells. Can we say that both scenarios exist to some extent? Yeah, I would say that it seems likely that there will be global sources of noise that will affect most genes at the same time. And some examples would be the fact that transcriptional machinery has to assemble in the promoter region of each gene, and that should be true for all genes, right? So the fact that that is also a stochastic process will affect the noise of all genes at the same time. The question is whether that is the dominant process that affects this noise or whether there's other processes that are involved in the regulation of gene expression that are dominant. And if the latter possibility is true, then I would say that it would be the process of gene regulation that will cause most of this noise. But if there are any other pathways that are shared by most of the genes or by a large number of genes, then those pathways might produce a correlation in the level of noise between all those genes. So why do we need to understand this? What will discriminating between these two scenarios tell us about genetics, evolution, and the way that multicellular organisms work? Well, here is the thing. If noise is mainly determined by the DNA sequence of a regulatory region or a fibromotor, then that means that changes, evolutionary changes in those regions will cause changes in the level of noise. And in those cases where noise is a quantitative phenotype that might be useful or detrimental for a cell, then particular changes in the architecture or the regulatory region of a gene will be subject to evolution. So in contrast, if, if noise is mainly governed by global sources and it's kind of a, an unavoidable process that affects all of genes in the same way, then one could argue that noise would not be able to be a gene-specific phenotype that can evolve unless it evolves globally for the whole cell. All right. Well, Avril Sanchez, thank you so much. Thank you. Alvaro Sanchez and Idol Golding write about the origin of transcriptional noise in a review for this week's special section on single-cell biology. The 2011 Tohoku Oki earthquake was incredible in its destruction and consequences. The quake triggered a giant tsunami that killed tens of thousands and affected millions in Japan and caused meltdowns at the Fukushima nuclear power complex, leading to radiation leakage into the surrounding land and water. The origin of the earthquake was the Japan Trench, where two overlapping plates underwent a sudden and large slip, 7,000 meters under the water. After a year's planning, the JFAST expedition set sail to the origin of the quake to take careful measurements deep under the water. I spoke with Emily Brodsky about their results. It was a devastating earthquake with significant casualties in Japan, that made a giant tsunami, and part of the reason it made a giant tsunami was because it slipped 50 meters by the trench at the seafloor. 
and that is the largest amount that any earthquake ever has slipped that we've recorded. It was really a big surprise that it slipped 50 meters, and particularly a surprise that it slipped 50 meters at the sea floor, which is a place where a lot of previous studies thought that slip would be relatively low. Hmm. And so how far away from the coast was this, and what is the magnitude that we normally hear about when we think earthquakes? What's happening here is one plate is going under the other plate. So the plate on the eastern side is diving downward into the mantle. The fault is at the surface at the sea floor, 200 kilometers off the coast. It continues down deeper underneath the islands of Japan. And so what happened in that earthquake is a large section of the fault, a couple hundred kilometers of the fault, moved all at once, and that's what makes it a magnitude 9 earthquake. And it moved over a large region, and it moved a large amount. And there are direct measurements of the seafloor in deep water where it was found that if you looked at the seafloor before the earthquake and after the earthquake, you would see that there was 50 meters offset. So you were able to get to the site so quickly and do some pretty amazing technological feats. How were you able to prepare for this instance? A bunch of us got together quite some time ago now, around 2008, and thought about what are the outstanding problems at earthquake physics, and we were pretty clear that one of them was what is the friction on a fault during an earthquake, and how could we actually solve this? We've been sort of kicking around this problem for 40 years and coming up with various theoretical and laboratory predictions, but we didn't really have in-situ measurements. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we were pretty clear that the only real way to solve this would be to drill rapidly after a big earthquake. So we kind of created this whole plan for this project in the absence of the earthquake. Hmm. We just then waited until there would be an ability to actually take the measurements. And I do remember at the time somebody saying, well, what if the earthquake happens under the ocean because ocean drilling is much more complicated than land drilling? And we said, oh, we really don't want to do anything under the ocean. And then somebody else said, you know, what if there was a magnitude 9 earthquake off of Japan? And we said, oh, well, I don't know. A magnitude 9 earthquake off of Japan would be a pretty special case, but we don't really expect that to happen. So... I guess we won't plan for it. <laughs> so did that meeting and those conversations actually lead to this preparation? And yes, absolutely. Amazing. There was a whole report that was written at that time, and that was effectively the JFAS proposal. So the results you're reporting this week come from drilling into this zone. Can you talk about what was done with these data? Sure. There were several different experiments that were done in the JFAS expedition in order to determine the friction on the fault. One was to drill a hole into the fault, place a bunch of temperature sensors in that hole, leave them there, come back nine months later, pick up the temperature sensors, and look at the temperature of the fault. And the reason we did this was because whenever anything slides with friction, that friction dissipates heat. You rub your hands together, it makes your hands warm. And so you can think about rubbing your hands together as an inverse problem. You rub your hands together, if you measured the temperature, you could figure out what the friction was between your hands. Mm -hmm. So we're doing the same thing with the fault zone. 
In addition to that, we recovered samples, actual pieces of rock from the fault zone, and determined the stratigraphy and geological setting of that fault. There have been many experiments done with those samples, including actually measuring their friction in the lab. All of this, I should add, was actually done very close to one of the deepest places in the ocean anywhere on Earth. It was done on seven kilometers water depth, and this is the first time that anybody has drilled a substantive hole of any kind under seven kilometers of water, let alone drill it, take measurements, put in instruments, and bring home the instruments nine months later. What were you able to tell from looking at the temperature measurements over that time period? We saw about a third of a degree temperature increase over the fault zone. It was extremely exciting to us. When I explain this to people, they often stare at me when I say (laughs) that we're very excited about a 0.3 degree temperature increase. But because we had 55 temperature sets in the hole and that they measured for a long period for nine months, we could resolve the temperature difference between the fault and not the fault, and we could also see how it changed over time. So we can be reasonably clear that what we're looking at is a transient effect related to the earthquake. And it's the first time that anybody's actually been able to watch the evolution of temperature on a fault after a big earthquake. And so this is really new. Mm -hmm. And because of that temperature increase measurement, we are able to say that the apparent coefficient of friction on this fault is around 0.1. For reference, sort of the canonical value for most rocks in most places is around somewhere between 0.6 and 0.8. So this is a much smaller number of friction. It implies that faults are much slipperier than we thought, at Mm -hmm. least this fault is. And how soon after the earthquake were you able to start taking these measurements? The temperature instruments went in around 15 months after the earthquake. The expedition actually set sail just over a year after the earthquake, Mm -hmm. which is another record for ocean drilling to be able to mobilize that quickly. So that's what you're able to tell from the data on temperature. What about the other measurements you did at the fault zone? What were they able to tell you about the composition and structure of this area? Well, the samples themselves are fascinating the actual pieces of rock from the fault zone. They show a unusually high clay content, a very soft structure, and a very high degrees of localization, which all provide qualitative evidence that the fault zone is quite slippery. And in addition to that, when those samples were taken into the lab and actually tested for their friction, it was found that when they were slipped at velocities that we might expect during an earthquake, their friction is quite low and really surprisingly similar to what we're inferring from the temperature data. Comparing these results that you got from this site to what's been seen at other faults, how do they line up? There are reasons to believe that the clay content might be a little bit unusual on this fault, which might be why there was such an enormous earthquake here. Whether or not that's really a controlling factor is one of the things that I think remains to be tested. I think it's going to be a very interesting thing to start to try to figure out whether or not the HOKU results are applied to other fault zones. I should point out that part of the reason that these measurements could be made here was because once you have 50 meters of slip, the energy dissipated is much larger than any other earthquake which would have smaller slip. 
And so in some ways, we can only make these measurements after very, very large earthquakes. And so what remains is now that we know what we're looking for and how fine and small a signal it is, we would design a very different kind of instrumentation to take a look at it after other perhaps less devastating earthquakes. It's also an open question whether or not the deep earthquakes underneath subduction zones, you know, the kind of earthquakes that we've had recently in Tohoku or in Sumatra, if those earthquakes are different in any way than big continental earthquakes or faults like the San Andreas. Interesting. Emily Brodsky, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed being able to explain all of this. Emily Brodsky and colleagues write about temperature measurements at the Tohoku Oki Fault. Their report is part of a three-part package on the initial results from the JFAST expedition, published this week in Science. Venomous snakes may have slithered their way into a dark area of public sentiment, but now scientists are looking for ways to use snake venom to heal rather than harm. And with roughly 600 venomous snakes on Earth, there's a treasure trove of toxins for researchers to explore. Kai Cooperschmidt begins by describing to Christy Hamilton the symptoms that would ensue after a toxic bite from a pit viper. Some of the symptoms you'd probably feel are dizziness, you might bleed from the nose, have internal bleeding, for example, in the brain, or you might even vomit blood. And ultimately, some of the patients would die because of blood loss or because the kidneys shut down. So are venom and toxin interchangeable here? That's a very good question. I, I tend to use them more or less that way. Actually, so the venom would be what actually comes out of the venom gland of an animal. But the individual compounds you would either call toxins or maybe venomous compounds. Okay. And so rather than honing in the harm, though, researchers are searching for healing powers within the snake's venom. Is there any precedent for venom as treatment from other snakes? There are a few examples, not that many, but the first example is probably in the 1960s. Brazilian scientists were studying the venom of the lancet viper, and they found several peptides in it that dramatically lowered blood pressure. So chemists at Bristol-Myers Squibb later used one of these molecules to develop captopril. That's a medication against hypertension that's still used today. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the first of a whole new class of drugs that are called ACE inhibitors, and they had a huge impact. So that is usually the first example that's given. And then there's a few more. I mean, in the 1990s, two other drugs were approved. They're called Integralin and Acrostat, and both are peptides from snakes, and both are used to reduce the risk of thrombosis or myocardial infarction, for instance. Mm -hmm. So how do the researchers start to identify the individual compounds they want from the thousands of peptides in the snake's venom? Identifying the compounds is actually one of the hardest parts of all of this. So scientists have gotten a lot better at doing it in recent years by using two modern techniques. One of them is mass spectrometry, and the other one is transcriptome sequencing. So the basic idea is that these are peptides, and peptides are chains of amino acids, and there are 20 different amino acids, and what a researcher would really want is the exact sequence of amino acids in a peptide. To get that with mass spectrometry, you can break the peptides into smaller fragments, and then you weigh the fragments, and from the weight, you can infer a bit of the sequence. It's possible for fairly small peptides to find the whole sequence of a peptide with this, but in general, you know, if you have a peptide that has for 50 or 60 amino acids, it's almost impossible to do that. So they came up with this other technique that they combine with it, which is called transcriptome sequencing. So in that, they would milk a snake for its venom, 
And then the snake upregulates the venom genes because it has to produce new venom. And then they would use, from the venom gland, they would use the transcripts of genes that they find there after a few days. They would sequence them. And then they have basically a snapshot of all of the recipes for the different venom toxins. And then they can compare that to the information that they get from the mass spectrometry and try to bring the two things together. So basically they have an idea of what kind of peptides they may find. And then with the fragments that they know, they can say, okay, this is probably this venom. Mm -hmm. And how does a researcher milk a snake exactly? That's actually, um, I, I visited the Institute of Butantan in, in Sao Paulo and, and watched some researchers milk snakes there. And it's fairly low tech, to be honest. They take the snake and they put them in a big bottle filled with CO2 to anesthetize them. And then they take the snake out and they, they need to grab them at the back of the head in a way that they can't be bitten as well. And then they press the fangs that the snake has. They press them through a bit of cellophane that's on top of a glass and they basically massage the venom out of the venom gland. So this is obviously, a snake doesn't have that much venom, it's a few milliliters at best, so you need to do this with a lot of snakes to get decent amounts of venom. Once they've sort of identified some individual compounds, where do they go next? Yeah, so sometimes they'll already have an idea, you know, from anecdotal evidence that this venom does certain things in human beings. And for instance, if they have an indication that it might lower blood pressure, they may go into a mouse model and then try to see whether this venom would actually lower blood pressure in mice. And once they've kind of established that there is something in the venom that has a certain effect, they can try to isolate the exact toxin that may be responsible for that effect. And then once they have that and they can really purify it and then at some point also try it in humans. Mm -hmm. And so then what about that transition from venomous compound to marketplace drug? What steps are involved there? Getting from a toxin to a treatment isn't that easy, basically because most of these molecules are peptides. So it has some disadvantages. First of all, you know, they're quite expensive to produce. They can also lead to an immune reaction in a patient. But most importantly, you usually have to inject a peptide because otherwise it will be broken down before it ever reaches the bloodstream in a human being. Most pharma companies, of course, are interested in pills that you can just swallow. So there's quite a long way to go from the peptide to a treatment. In the case of captopril, for instance, scientists use that as an example. They try to find a molecule that looks very similar on the molecular level and has the same effect in the human body, but that is not a peptide. With some of the newer drugs, people are trying to actually use the actual peptide. So integralin, for instance, that is the actual peptide from a snake. In that case, you still have to formulate it in a way. So you, you have to make it as stable as possible so that people don't have to get a lot of injections. And also you have to try to prove that it's safe, first of all, because humans might have an immune reaction to a peptide. That's very important with peptides. So there's quite a bit of research that needs to be done, you know, from finding a venom that's interesting or a toxin in a venom that's interesting to actually having a treatment. Mm -hmm. And then what about the venom from spiders, scorpions, or even centipedes? Are researchers exploring those avenues as well? Yes, researchers are really looking at a lot of very different venomous animals now. Snakes have probably been studied the most for a lot of reasons. One of them is simply that they produce more venom than a centipede, so it was easier to study. But actually, some of these other animals may be even more interesting. 
one of the reasons is that there's a lot more species of venomous spiders than snakes. And actually, on average, a spider venom also has more venomous compounds than a snake venom. That's probably because spiders attack insects, and insects are a very diverse group, so they need to have a very diverse array of toxins as well to be able to kill all of them. They're also interesting because they tend to interfere with the nervous system rather than the cardiovascular system. So they may be particularly good for developing new pain medication, which is a field where there's always interest in new medication as well. Well, Kai Cooper-Schmidt, thanks for talking with me. Pleasure. Thank you. Kai Cooper-Schmidt writes about the medicinal potential of snake venom in This Week's Science. And that concludes the December 6, 2013 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. And I'm Linda Poon. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.